0: Uh, good morning, everyone, and thank you, Nigel, for leading us this morning. Uh, so today we are going to meet and we're going to start reading about one of the kind of biggest, one of the greatest characters in the Old Testament, a kind of uh, A-lister in the biblical story, in God's story, and in our story, a person who is so important that Jesus referred to him, the Apostle Paul referred to him, John referred to him, James referred to him, a person so important that he physically appeared in the New Testament, despite the fact that he died 900 years previously, or did he actually die? It's a mute point. If you do have a Bible, do you want to grab it and uh, look up 1 Kings 17, I don't have the words of the text on the screen this morning, so if you do have a device with you or, or a hard copy of God's Word, please look up 1 Kings 17, and as Nigel says, even though it is, is Palm Sunday, we are sticking with our Game of Thrones series, although if you were here right at the beginning, whenever Nigel mentioned, at the end of this chapter in 1 Kings, there is a death, followed in three, now not days, but three somethings, and we'll come to that, by a resurrection. It's the first recorded resurrection in Scripture. So maybe there is more than a hint of Easter in what we're about to read. Before we, we do read, let me bring us up to speed with where we've got. To so last week, we reached the point where Asa who had been king in uh, Judah, in the southern kingdom. He had died, he had reigned for 41 years, and his son Jehoshaphat had come onto the throne. Asa now was a good king. Wasn't a perfect king, but he was a good king. The Bible tells us that he did all that was right in the Lord's eyes, and his heart was fully committed to the Lord all the days of his life. And so we concluded, you know, it is possible to live for God in dark and difficult times. And it is possible to finish well. Not just to start well, because we, as we, we know and we recognize, so many people start out in the Christian faith well, but don't end well. Asa started well, Asa finished well. 41 years he reigned for. But during the time that Asa reigned for 41 years in Judah, there were a number of kings who came and went in Israel. In the northern kingdom. The last northern king that we looked at was Jeroboam. Who was a great right royal disaster. But after Jeroboam came this lot. Now I know lots, lots of you, that's an exaggeration. Some of you love history, right? So he, here's is, here is a list of the kings that came after Jeroboam and just a little about them. The next king was a guy called Nadab. He was a son of Jeroboam. He, it says, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and he copied his dad. He did what his dad did. He only lasted two years. And the reason he lasted two years is because Besha killed him and he succeeded Nadab as king and he reigned for 24 years. But again, Bible says he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then Elah, who was a son of Bashar, he jumped onto the throne. He only reigned for two years. Why? Because Zimri killed him as he was getting drunk with his palace administrator. Zimri took over as king, but only lasted a week. Seven days. And again, what does scripture tell us? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then there was a bit of a split vote in Israel regarding who would be the next king. Half of Israel supported a guy called Tibni. The other half supported a guy called Omri. Omri's followers were stronger than Tibni's. So Tibni died and Omri became king and he lasted for 12 years. Now this is all during the time of Asa's reign in the south. Omri was king for 12 years. And again, surprise, surprise, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Plus the Bible tells us that he sinned more than any king before him. Then things got really bad. Like worse than bad. Who can tell me who becomes king after Omri? Who goes down as the wickedest king who ever reigned in Israel? Go. Ahab, absolutely Ahab. And there are four things we're told about this king, just to indicate how awful he was. And these all come at the end of 1 Kings chapter 16. Here are the four things we're told about Ahab. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those who were before him. More evil than more evil than any. He was the sinner of the century. He married. Jezebel. Now, even if you know nothing about the Bible, we know that that name indicates immorality. So, this was not a good move on Ahab's part to marry Jezebel. Fourth, third thing we're told about him is that he started to serve and worship Baal. Whoa, there we go. There's, we're going to have it read to us (laughs) out loud. Ahab started to serve and worship Baal, who was the supreme God of the Canaanites. It actually says that this king of Israel, now remember he was a king of Israel, he built a temple, Solomon had built a temple for the Lord. Ahab built a temple for Baal. And then the fourth thing we're told about him is this, and I'm quoting now. He did more to arouse the anger of the Lord. Now, not the jealous anger as a previous king had aroused, just the raw anger. He did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So Ahab was also a right royal disaster. And therefore, a major problem requires a major solution. A big-time villain needs an all-time hero. Drum roll, enter Elijah, who is the key character or is he? Please stand with me for the public reading of God's compelling word. First Kings 17. We're going to read the whole chapter. So if you have a copy in front of you, great. If you want to close your eyes so you can kind of imagine it, great. If you want to share with someone, it would be brilliant. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah: Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kereth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have instructed ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and eat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, and stay there, I have instructed a widow to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called and bring me please a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord, your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. "'Only a handful of flour in a jar "'and a little olive oil in a jug. "'I am gathering a few sticks to take home "'and make a meal for myself and my son "'that we may eat it and die.'" Elijah said to her, "'Don't be afraid.'" Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make yourself something for you and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jar of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain in the land. She went away and she did as Elijah told her. So there was food for every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, "'What have you against me, man of God? "'Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son?' Give me your son, Elijah replied. And he took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on the bed. And then he cried out to the Lord, Lord God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow that I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down in from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, "Look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Grab a seat. Like, where did he come from? Where did he come from? You know, unlike virtually every other major player in the biblical story, Elijah's introduction is surprisingly abrupt. There's no background information. All we are told about is his hometown. And even then, for most people, his hometown is a complete mystery. He just appears on the pages of Scripture. Just walks onto the stage. And immediately he gets an audience with a king. And he speaks to Ahab. But it's what he says that tells us everything we really need to know. Here's what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Four things. Four very important things we discover right up front, even though there's no background info. And the first is this. Elijah confirms that the Lord, Yahweh, is the God of Israel. In other words, the first thing that he says to this king is, do you know something? Baal is not the God of Israel. And so immediately this prophet challenges this king's worship and idolatry. Secondly, he makes the point that this God of Israel lives. Unlike Baal, unlike any false God, man-made God, the God of Israel is alive. Your God isn't, Ahab. Third thing Elijah clarifies in his opening speech is, I am a servant of this living God of Israel. And the fourth thing he says is a shocking message of judgment. There's going to be a drought. For a few years, this is not going to be a prolonged dry spell. This is going to be a complete drought for months and months and months on end. It's a sobering word of judgment, but the thing is, it's not completely out of the blue. Listen to these words from Moses back in Deuteronomy 11 Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's angle will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. See, God's people had been warned about the grave danger of worshiping any other god. You see, the first commandment, the second commandment, they do matter. They did matter. They still matter. And if we go back to Solomon's majestic prayer that Tim taught us about, at the dedication of that grand opening of the magnificent temple that he built, here is part of what Solomon said, and these were rather ominous words as he addressed God, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you. And so these present circumstances in Ahab's day, years later, years after Moses, years after this, it had all been predicted. The Israelites had been warned. Now it was time to face the consequences. You see, what God says will happen does happen. Why? And if you remember nothing else, just remember this phrase God's word is true. God's word is true. But one of the main reasons why this is such a striking message of judgment is, you see, because in Canaanite mythology and worship, Baal was the god of the wind and the weather. So this is going to be interesting. Because if if Baal is worth worshiping, if Baal is worth anything, then this is going to be no big deal. Rain is his specialty. It's part of his repertoire. And so by Elijah announcing a catastrophic drought, He's drawing clear battle lines. He's setting up an epic competition to discover, well, who exactly is the real deal, Which God? Whose God is the true God? Will there be a drought or won't there? In Baal's land or in the land where you have started to worship Baal. Let's find out. But before we continue the story, let me ask all of us an obvious question. It's a question you'd expect me to ask out of the back of this. It's a question we've got to constantly be asking ourselves. Who or what do we currently worship? As people observe our lives, as people have observed your life and my life over the past week, what have they discovered is number one in our lives? As people have have watched us live, have listened to us speak, who have they observed is the most important in our lives? The Bible makes it really, really clear that we must worship the Lord our God and serve him only. But it isn't easy, is it? It's not easy. Whenever the sheer seductive power of the world around us makes loyalty to the one true living God an enormous challenge. I mean, most of us face daily temptation to redirect our worship elsewhere, don't we? It's a challenge to worship God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind every single day, isn't it? So many other things vie for our attention, vie for our affection. Compete for our love. But you know, even Jesus himself faced this very issue and allure. But as he was enticed to redirect his worship, he said this echoing explicit Old Testament teaching. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And that is our that is my challenge. That is your challenge. That is our challenge. So how's it been this week? How's your worship of God looked this week? And if there are other gods in whatever form or substance, and they can take many different forms and substance, but if there are other gods that are attracting our worship, that are taking God's number one place in our lives, then it is vital that we refocus. It's vital that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. It is vital that we can say with Elijah and with integrity that it is God we serve as opposed to any counterfeit or foreign God. See, God's people can get distracted. God's people can compromise their worship. God's people can entertain other gods. I do, I have this week. And if nothing else, these stories of the wayward kings and the wayward people in the book of First Kings should remind us of the priority of true worship and genuine service. How's your worship? How's your worship being this morning? As you have sung, as you have joined Nigel in prayer, as you have eaten bread and drank wine, does it come from here, from your heart? Because God, you're number one. Let's go back to the text. We're at verse two out of twenty-four verses. So the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, and it says, "Elijah, I want you to leave." And I want you to go and hide. And I want you to know that I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going to provide water from a brook, which is no big deal. But I'm also going to provide food from ravens, which is wee bit odd. First known deliveroo service. But there's two reasons why this is a particularly odd idea. I mean, it really is odd. The first is ravens were considered unclean. Meaning Leviticus, it spells that out absolutely clearly that they are dirty birds. Secondly, ravens tend to steal food as opposed to provide it. And so let me make a couple of comments about what's going on here, at least what I think might be going on here. For a start, Elijah immediately leaving Ahab, having given him this message, immediately being told, I want you to go and I want you to hide. It meant that it's not only a case of bye-bye rain, it's a case of bye-bye the word of God. As one writer comments, the disappearance of Elijah spells the absence of the word of God from the life of Israel. Israel's judgment is the drought of the land, but it's also the silence of the Lord. And do you know something that is a frightening thought? Because you see, whenever God's word dries up and disappears from our lives, we are in real trouble. Again, to quote Jesus, man lives not just on physical bread, but actually we live on every single word that comes from the mouth of God. And if God's word is no longer present, if God's word is no longer being consumed, no longer being taken in, we genuinely face a life-threatening situation, a spiritual life threatening situation. Now, I realize that God hid and withdrew his word from Ahab and from the people, and God help us if that was to ever happen here. But let's make sure we as individuals, and let's make sure we as a church, that we never distance ourselves from the word of God, or we allow God's word to become dry, or we allow God's word to become silent in our lives through neglect. So again, challenges. How has the word of God featured in your life and in my life this week? What have we taken in? What have we consumed? Because man doesn't live in bread alone, but on every single word that comes from the mouth of God, if we are gonna survive spiritually, we need to be eating God's word. And the second comment I wanna make about the ravens is this. You see, if God wants to use dirty thieves... To provide for his profit. That's his prerogative, and it only serves to illustrate the fact that God sometimes sustains His people in the most unusual ways. God sustains His people in the most peculiar ways at times. And so the question is, what does what Elijah do? Haven't been told to go. Haven't been co- told to hide. Haven't been told that he's going to be fed by ravens. What's he going to do? Verse 5. So he did what the Lord had told him total obedience. Despite God's words' unusual content. And you know, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because God's word is packed with commands to us that invite our obedience, irrespective of how strange they might seem. So, for example, and we've done this sort of thing before, God commands us to love our enemies. God, that that makes no sense at all. That is unusual. That's bizarre. But that's what we're commanded to do. Forgive those who sin against you. God, that, that doesn't make sense to me. That's what we're commanded to do if we're believers of Jesus. Die daily to self. So unusual in our culture, which is all about me, me, me. Jesus commands to die daily to self. Elijah doesn't appear to have asked any questions. He doesn't seek further explanation. He just obeys. And as a result, he's fed and he's watered. But sometime later, verse 7, if you're following, the brook dries up. And initially, we might think, well, God's provision has reached its limit. But no. What that actually reveals is that the word of God comes true. The word of God can be relied upon. The word of God is trustworthy because the predicted drought is now starting to kick in. You see, what God says will happen does happen. Again, God's word is true. And so, as the brook dries up, a timely word of God comes to Elijah again and provides further direction, which is often the way God works. Because rather than reveal everything all at once and the full picture and all the details, God leads and directs us a day at a time, a step at a time. And therefore, here's my advice to many of us let's live in the moment. Let's not get hung up or anxious about what's next. Let's just keep listening and keep obeying. Yeah, I'd love God to reveal exactly what the whole future looks like, but that's not the way God works. God leads us and directs us a step at the time. That's the way I work with Elijah here. Go hide, I'll provide for you. Brook straight up, okay, let's move on. But the two things that God says to Elijah beside this straight up brook are really interesting. To start with, Elijah, I want you to move to Sidon. I want you to go now beyond the borders of Israel, which means that not only is the word of God becoming increasingly withdrawn, increasingly distant, increasingly hard to hear, but actually the man of God is being sent into enemy territory because do you see Sidon? That's where Jezebel's from. I'm sending you, Elijah, right into Beel country. It's a bit like Jonah being sent to Nineveh, but there's a major difference. Elijah doesn't throw the toys out of the pram. In fact, based on this rather uncomfortable command, we simply read that Elijah obeys. And so it says in verse 10, so he went to Zarephath, which is in Sidon. No questions asked, no objections raised. God, you've said it. You've told me where to go. I'm obeying. But the destination wasn't the only surprising aspect of what God said. It's how Elijah is gonna be sustained there. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I have instructed a widow there to supply you with food. So much confusion, as the TV ad says. Do you know if it wasn't weird enough to have ravens provide for you? Now Elijah is going to be provided by a widow, which is just as strange. Why? Because widows in that culture and context tended to need to be supplied for not to be the people supplying anyone else. They were the ones who needed people to come into their lives and provide for them. But here God was saying, I have instructed a widow to provide for you. See, 30 birds on the one hand and unlikely women on the other. God really does look after and sustain his people in unusual ways. And very, very quickly, you discover that right enough, the chances of this widow supplying anything for Elijah, it's a complete joke, God. Because whenever Elijah meets her, and I know there's all sorts of questions, how did Elijah know that this was the particular widow in question? But this particular widow was gathering sticks, and it turns out to be the one that he is meant to meet. But whenever he meets her, he asks for a drink, and then he asks for a piece of bread, and here's how she replies. She says, listen, I don't have any bread. I've only got a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug and I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and son that we may eat it and die. This widow and her son are at death's door. They're preparing their last supper. And so even though this stranger is only asking for a morsel of bread, that's what it means. He's only asking for a piece of bread. It is still a massive ask. In fact, It's a cruel ask. And what is Elijah's response to her? Did you pick up on it? What does Elijah say to her? Don't be afraid. Now, those are are words, that's a biblical phrase that we come across time and time again in Scripture. And it's almost always spoken into situations where there is every reason to be afraid, to be very afraid. This widow was frightened. She and her son are gathering some sticks to make their last supper, and then they're going to die. And some stranger has wandered into their lives and is asking him to feed him, or asking them to feed him. She's scared, and then she hears those words: "Don't be afraid." I wonder how she felt. I wonder how Mary felt whenever she heard the angel say, "Don't be afraid, Mary. You're going to give birth to the Son of God." I wonder how the shepherds felt whenever the angel turned up and said, "Look, look don't be afraid." I bring you good news of great joy, which is for all the people. I wonder how Jairus felt whenever Jesus said to him, don't be afraid, just believe and your daughter will be healed. How did he feel? And I wonder this morning how all of us feel when we read these words of Jesus. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and hate let me ask you a question do you fear dying do you fear death we all do don't we to a certain extent it's understandable and so uh, let me ask you how do you feel this morning when you hear those words of jesus do not be afraid Well, the widow hears those three words. And then she receives an incredible promise. Elijah says, this is what the Lord says to you. See that jar of flour? See that jug of oil? It's not going to run dry. They're not going to run dry. They're not going to run dry until the Lord sends rain on the land. Who knows how long it rained for? It didn't rain for, sorry. Three and a half years according to the New Testament. Closer to three years according to the Old Testament. 36 months at least. That little amount of flour, that little amount of oil, neither of those are going to run out. And surely this woman, as she hears this, has got umpteen questions. Like, like what is she going to say next to this stranger who's asked her for a part of her last meal and now tells her not to be afraid because all her flour and or her oil or the little bit she has is not going to run out until the Lord's you. She must have had umpteen questions. So what does she say next? Here's what she says next. Or what she did next. So she went away and she did as Elijah had told her. You see, she believed, and I don't know how this worked. She believed the promise of God. She obeyed the command of God. And hers is an example that needs to be embraced by each and every one of us. Believe and obey. Trust and obey. Is, is that not a pretty decent summary of the Christian life? We just gotta trust God and we gotta obey. Yes, it's so many things that God says that are strange or unusual, don't make sense. We've got lots of questions. We've got lots of doubts. But actually what God says is, listen, do you trust me? And are you gonna obey me? Like, that is what that is what Christianity, in a sense, boils down to. Do we trust God this morning with our lives? And with our inevitable deaths? And are we obeying God? Well, we're getting near the end of the chapter. But one of the things I said right at the start of this morning is that Elijah is referred to by a number of different people in the New Testament, including Jesus. Let, let Let me read what Jesus said about Elijah. This is Luke 4. Truly I tell you, Jesus continued, no prophet is accepted in his own town. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of those widows in Israel, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. See, the minute Jesus said that in Luke chapter 4, people wanted to kill him. The minute Jesus said this in Nazareth, people wanted to kill him. They were absolutely livid. Why? Simple. Simple. Jesus was making the point that the gospel reaches beyond borders. God's grace knows no boundaries. The Gentiles, non-Israelites, they can trust, they can obey, they can become part of the family of God. No one is excluded from the family of God, irrespective of background or where they're from, including widows from Sidon, from Balesville, from Gentile land, from Heathensburg. Including those kind of people. No one is beyond the reach and grace of God. The question for us is this. People in Nazareth did not believe that. People in Nazareth did not think that was right. People in Nazareth could not accept that. Do we? Do we believe that no one is beyond the reach and grace of God? Story is almost over. Sometime later, we have no idea how long, tragedy strikes. Son becomes ill. He deteriorates and he stops breathing. He dies. And the mother is devastated and she doesn't understand. And now she has questions. And, and who can blame her? And Elijah takes the dead son in his arms and, and he carries him upstairs And Elijah cries out to God and Elijah asks a question. You see, there is a place for questions directed to God in dark places. And so Elijah takes the widow's distress and he prays and he shares her anguish and he expresses it to God on her behalf and something I reckon we all do on numerous occasions for lots of people because we watch as family and friends go through difficult experiences. And what does it do? It drives us to our knees and we cry out to God and we say, why God? And we should, not because we have to have an answer to what is going on, but because we have a place to go and we have a throne to approach and we have a God to petition. And in this upper room, it says that God hears the prayer of his prophet and he responds and something extraordinary happens because after lying on the boy three times, and why does Elijah do that? He lies in the boy three times and he prays, and supernaturally, the son comes back to life. And as I said earlier, it's the first recorded resurrection in Scripture, albeit temporary, because the son will one day experience death again. And on Palm Sunday, our our minds do automatically wander towards the first Easter whenever Jesus, it says, tasted death for everyone, whenever he defeated it, whenever he rose again to guarantee that for all who do trust and obey, for all who believe in Jesus, then eternal life now awaits. The fear of death may still be real, of course it is, but the sting has been removed. But before we kind of get ahead of ourselves and go a week too early, we need to go back to Said and we need to finish with the last words of this chapter and the last words spoken by this humble widow. Now I know she holds her son again. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. You see, one of the one of the big questions raised this chapter is which God's the real God? Which God is the true God? Is it Ahab's God? Is it Jezebel's God? Or is it the God of Israel? And you see, based on First Kings 17, the answer is staring everyone in the face. It's Israel's God. Because Israel's God is the God of creation. Because here is a God who can shut up the heavens and who can cause rain to stop and dew to stop for at least 36 months, if not more. The God of creation who can command and dispatch ravens to deliver food every single morning and every single evening. He is the God of all creation. He is the God who can ensure that tiny amounts of flour and tiny amounts of oil don't run out for months and months and months on end. But ultimately, he is the God of creation who is the Lord of life and the Lord of death. Can Baal do any of that? Is Baal any better than that? Well, in the next chapter and in the showdown at Mount Carmel, that will that question will be answered once and for all. Elijah is a huge new old testament character. He's a huge New Testament character, but he's not the main one. Because does anyone know what Elijah means? Elijah means not that. Sorry, Paul, I just pressed the wrong button there. Elijah means, I'm not going to say it until it comes up on the screen. Elijah means, Yahweh is my God. See, the main character is always God, whose word is truth. And therefore, my hope and prayer from this morning as a result of reading and reflecting on 1 Kings is that our understanding of God, our vision of God, our worship of God will have intensified. Why? Because our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any other. And so to him be glory forever and ever. Amen.